0: In my hour of death, call me that I may come to you. Isn't that the hope of the Christian? That in the hour of death, at the end of it all, which is coming for each of us, he will call us. He calls us now, children, Abba, we cry out within our, he cries out by his spirit within us. So he calls us now and one day for the Christian, when that final breath comes, that final beat of the heart, that final thought with a human brain, we will go to God because of Christ, because of his grace. And that's the great hope of the Christian, is that death is not the end of this Of this earthly life. It's not the end for us. One day we will live on the earth again, but in the meantime we'll be with God. And so I just want to extend to you this invitation. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, He can change your heart and He can give you this hope. So turn to Him. Trust in Him. As most of you know, as has already been mentioned in the service today, this is our last Sunday worshiping in this building where Four Corners Church has met since 2012. Uh, as you can see, it's a little sparse, uh, so you probably, are, probably already doesn't feel very much like home even now with all the things uh, cleaned out. But this is the last Sunday in this building. And while it is always difficult to leave a space like this that has been home, I trust that we will remember, as Mark prayed... That this is just that. It's a space. It's a gathering place. Our home as a church is the people. We are at home when we are with one another. We know that as Christians, the church is the people of God. That that God is enthroned, as we read in his word, that God is enthroned above the praises of his people. That where God's people are gathered together to exalt him, to worship him, that is where we find the church. Not a building, not a, a space. Ken mentioned in a congregational update meeting that we had several weeks ago, some of you may have been here, that we could just meet under a tree. And that is, that is true. We could have church under a tree week after week after week. And in fact, we, we know that there are Christians all over the world, even today, who are worshiping in such circumstances. Some of them not even under a tree, in a sewer. Some of them under Neath places, dark places, smelly places, scary places. And so we recognize that this is where the church is, the people of God. We thank God that he's provided for Four Corners this place uh, for these six years and that he is providing for us now a temporary space at Madras Middle School. That's where we will meet. So by the way, I wonder how many people will show up here uh, next Sunday. I wonder if I will show up here next Sunday. I don't know. I was telling Jennifer that this week. I said, I hope I don't forget and just drive to 18th Savannah Street. So if I'm, I'm late for preaching next Sunday, that's, that's what happened. Uh, so who knows how many people will do that, but next week will be, we will be at Madras Middle School, and we, that will be our temporary location until our permanent location at Highway 29 is ready, and preparations are finished on that. So that's where we will be, and we will still be Four Corners Church. With that being said, please go with me in your Bibles to Genesis 4, verses 9 to 16. We are continuing our series on the book of Genesis. I just want to encourage some of you who may think we're going to be here for eternity and beyond, that's, that, the hope is that's not the case. I think once we get into, uh, this, is, this is me being optimistic, I think once we get into the narratives, uh, there will be larger chunks of, of Scripture that really will hang together. These opening chapters, especially uh, chapters 1 to 3, but really what we find all the way up to chapter 11 are so important. And uh, chapters 1 to 3 are so important for establishing the foundation of the Bible, For establishing the foundation of God's plan, of human sinfulness, of Christ's redemption, of God's work throughout history. And so that's the reason we've taken the time that we have. So I don't know how much time we'll spend on the rest of Genesis, but uh, I just want to encourage you with that. So Genesis 4, verses 9 to 6. This morning we pick up with the latter half of the Cain and Abel narrative, which we began two weeks ago. And I want to thank Mark for preaching last Sunday in my absence, uh, Jeremiah 17. And I just I praise God for Mark's reminder that we constantly need, and that is that, that God is trustworthy, that we can bank everything on him. We can trust God. Trust is not just a, a, an inherently good thing. Like, it's good to trust. No, it's not good to trust lies. It's not good to trust in created things. Trust is not intrinsically good or meritorious or valuable, but it depends on the object of the trust. And Mark reminded us so clearly of that last week, that God is worthy of our trust. As I stated last time, the word Cain appears 14 times between verses 1 to 17 as we open up chapter 4. Cain, 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 Cain. He keeps getting repeated in these verses, and this tells us that the focus of this section is on Cain. That's where our focus should be. In other words, the Holy Spirit wants us to take a close look at this man. The Holy Spirit is is placing Cain under a magnifying glass, placing Cain there clearly for our eyes to see. There are many things that we need to understand about this man. His corrupt character, his murderous behavior, and his sinful way of interacting with and responding to God. All of this, clear from the text, is being accentuated by the Holy Spirit. And he's calling us to look and gaze at this wicked man. And I think there are several reasons really for this emphasis on Cain. Why why so much focus on this particular individual? I think there are three reasons. First, Cain is emblematic. He's representative of the effect of the fall. Cain shows us, as as we just come right out of the fall in chapter three, we come into this narrative about Cain. Cain shows us the devastating effect of the fall on humankind. And so the Bible does not want to waste any time. The Holy Spirit who authored the Bible does not want to waste any time in showing us the state of man now after Adam and Eve's sin. I think the second reason why the focus is on Cain is because Cain prepares us for the condition of humanity at the time of the flood. So imagine by the time we get to the flood, the world is filled with canes. That's what we are meant to understand as we come up to Genesis chapter 6 and we get Noah and God coming to Noah and telling Noah he's going to flood the whole world, that there's violence and evil and wickedness and depravity worldwide. It's, It's polluted the earth all the way to the heavens. And so Cain points us forward to that reality. This is where humanity is headed, <coughs> towards the flood. And thirdly, and I think this is very significant, Cain and Abel prepare us for the biblical storyline of two ways and two kinds of people. Now get this, in Cain and Abel, we already at the beginning of human history, remember these are, these are the first two born. And at the very beginning of human history, we are already being introduced to the fact that there are two ways. When you read the book of Proverbs, this is an important theme. This is also an important theme in a psalm like Psalm 1, which introduces all of the psalms. There are two ways to live. Two ways of being human. Cain and Abel show us that. There are the graced and the godless. That's it. Two kinds of people in this world. Abel experienced God's grace, and by grace, through faith, he worshiped God. That was Abel. And Hebrews 11 tells us that's the case with him. That's the case with all of those people mentioned in Hebrews 11. All of the people throughout the Old Testament that we would want to call, quote-unquote, heroes of the faith, these are people who, by grace, through faith, worshiped the living God. Abel was the first one born to do that, and Cain was the exact opposite. He shows us what the sinner looks like, the godless man, the person who lives his or her life without any regard for God, just regard for self, the faithless man. So for the, ti- the title for the sermon last time was Evil After Expulsion, and last time we looked at the events leading up to and including Cain's murder of Abel, and that was in chapter four, verses one to eight. This is the very first picture of human life outside of Eden, and we highlighted three things as we looked at at Cain and Abel in those first eight verses. We highlighted three things, putting the focus, as I said before, putting the focus on Cain, we looked at three things. First, his rejected offering. What happens in those eight verses is that Cain and Abel each individually bring an offering to God. And God receives Abel's offering, but he rejects Cain's offering. And we can infer from that passage and elsewhere in the Bible that the reason really is twofold. And there's other aspects to this, but twofold. First, Cain does not have faith. He is a faithless man. He's not trusting in God's grace. He's not trusting in God's promises. And we also see from that that out of his faithlessness, Cain does not bring his very best to God. Abel. On the other hand, does the firstborn with its fat portions. He brings the very best of what he had to God, not the case with Cain. So we see his rejected offering, we see his raging attitude. As soon as God accepts Abel's offering and rejects Cain's offering, what does Cain do? He becomes angry. Not just angry, but very angry. Exceedingly angry. Literally, it burned with him exceedingly, as the Hebrew says. That was his heart filled with bitterness and rage towards God and hatred of his brother. God comes to him. And tells him not to sin, but to choose the right way. To repent of his his unworthy sacrifice and to go the way of the righteous. And what does Cain do? Immediately, he rebelliously murders his brother. His rejected offering, his raging attitude, his rebellious murder. And that's where we left off two weeks ago. Today we come to the latter part of this tragic story in verses 9 to sixteen, And the title for the sermon this morning is The Godless Man. The Godless Man. So go ahead and go there if you're not already there in your Bible. Genesis 4. And what we're going to see is that here, in Cain's interactions with God after his murderous deed, we really do see the quintessential sinner who lives apart from God. Cain is the quintessential rejecter of God. He's the lover of self. We know that love of self is at the heart of all sin. We can say many things are at the core of all sin. Unbelief is at the heart of all sin. Idolatry is at the heart of all sin. Pride is at the heart of all sin. Self, self self-love is at the heart of all sin. He is the hater of neighbor and he is the godless man. So what do we do do with this? Just before we get into the details, how do we engage with this story here this morning? Well, first I just want to speak to the non-Christian. And I just want to say very directly and clearly, this is like looking in a mirror. This is like looking in a mirror. Now, one of the first responses that anyone who is not a believer would say to that is, What? Cain murdered a person. Hello, I've never done that. Never done that. Look at my record. Never murdered anybody. Never even been arrested. I've never even gotten a ticket. Certainly, I haven't murdered anybody. But when you focus less on the deed itself and more on the heart, which remember in the New Testament, that's where Jesus brings us. He wants us to understand Human life and human sin from God's perspective, not from our own self-righteous, self-vindicating perspective, but from God's perspective, when Jesus comes along and says, this is what sin really is like, this is what's going on, Jesus puts it right on the heart. He puts the spotlight on the heart. And he says, if you're angry with your brother, you are a murderer, guilty of hell, guilty such that you deserve hell. Jesus says that. It always perplexes me. That liberal theologians uh, and others talk about that we want the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount. The Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount is a hellfire and brimstone preacher. What what in the world is up with that? So we know that Jesus puts the focus on the heart. Which means that you can't sit here this morning and say, if you're a non-Christian, for that matter all of us, that I am not a murderer. Because Jesus will one day tell you, yes, you are. If you've ever been angry with your neighbor, if you've ever called your neighbor a demeaning name or spoken slanderously about your neighbor, Jesus says you are a murderer and deserve the penalty for murder, which is eternal death. So for the non-Christian, this is like looking in a mirror. What about the Christian? What are we doing as we come to this narrative? What, how should the Christian engage with this? Well, for the Christian, this is like looking at an old photo on one level, right? So what should be the response of the unbeliever? The unbeliever should hear this story and say, woe is me. I am a sinner undone before a holy God. Save me, God. Have mercy on me. That should be the response of every person in this room today who encounters this story and is like Cain, undone before God. Before the person who is a Christian, I think on one level, this is like looking at an old photo, because the truth of the matter is that we were all born Cain's. Every single person was born like Cain, with a heart that rejects God, a heart that is corrupted, but God, <laughs> let me just say that, but God. Because that's exactly what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, we too were once. Oh, we were so vile, so wicked. We pursued self. We murdered. We lied. We broke all of God's commandments. But God, being rich in mercy, the great love with which he loved us, raised us up with Christ, seated us at his right hand in the heavenly places, that in the coming ages, We might declare his praises, be testimonies or or trophies to his glory. So we're meant to remember this morning. And you know what that does when we look back and we remember? We look at that old photo. What happens when we look at old photos? We have this kind of nostalgia, this sentimental response. Maybe they make us happy or they make us sad. Here's what that old photo should do for every one of us here today who's a Christian. It should cause us to erupt in praise. To God, Because that old photo, the only reason you are different now than then is because of God's grace, unmerited favor, undeserved goodness and kindness. He, he reached out to you in your sin and he saved you. He took, he took your sin and put it on Christ at the cross and Christ became sin for you. He died for you paying the penalty for your sins. So really, the Cain and Abel narrative should create an eruption of praise in every Christian as we consider that old photo. But there's one other thing for the Christian that I think we should think as we engage with this narrative, and that is, it's not just an old photo, but it is an enemy within. Now hear that. The non-Christian is like Cain, entirely. But the Christian has the principle of Cain. That old person in that photo is is not yet put to death. That person still raises up within us. That's the old man, which must be put to death daily, must be mortified, killed, constantly rising up within us, wanting to pursue godless Passions, hatred of God, hatred of man. This is what's functioning when we're sinning. Is this old man, this fleshy principle within us. And so as we study Cain, we praise God that, that we will not receive the fruit that Cain, that the, the consequences for the fruit of Cain's work what he did, his evil heart, that that we've been redeemed from that life and we've been redeemed from those consequences, but we should consider the fact that that inner Cain must be put to death today. Today, not tomorrow. Don't wait till tomorrow. Put Cain to death within you today. So if you will please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Genesis 4. And, you know, since it's been a couple of weeks, we really do need to just start at verse 1. So, here we go. We're going to start at verse 1. This is the Word of God. Verses 9 to 16 will be our focus, but I will start in verse 1. Hear what the Lord says to us all. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. There we see Eve's faith and relationship with God. Verse 2 And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. What an incredible divine warning. Verse 8. What's Cain's response? Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. He didn't listen to God. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray to God and ask him this morning just to illuminate his word. Without his help, we will just be, it'll be fruitless this morning, really will, just waste of time, all of us. But we're going to ask for his grace, his help, his empowering, uh, for the preaching of his word and for the... The, uh, the hearing of his word this morning. Praying for our kids too over in the children's ministry the Lord will bless them with eyes to see. Eyes to see. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, God, what an incredible thing that we can call you that. Just, uh, it's overwhelming that we don't just call you my God, my Lord, my Master. My King, but we call you Abba, Father, with a, with a love that is so much more intense than the closest bond between the closest father and his son or daughter in this world the world has ever seen. Unfathomable, incomprehensible, incomparable to our love for our own children. This is how much you love us as our Father. We praise you for that, God. We, we thank you that we don't have many of us here. and uh, Lord, we, we, we have a new photo, God, an imperfect photo, one in which we daily need your grace. But we praise you that you have renewed our minds, that you have brought light to our hearts, that you have made faith and repentance within us, and you have caused us to reach up to you by faith, and take hold of you through worship. God, we praise you that you are a saving God. Lord, we tremble as we consider what an awful thing it is to fall into the hands of the living God in judgment. God, we consider that that those who do not know you will indeed endure your full wrath against sin one day. And already are, as Paul says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So, Father, we ask that there would be seriousness today. We ask that each set of ears would hear your word. Each heart would receive your word. And, God, you would do your work among us. We know that each of us in this room needs you. And so, God, be merciful, we ask. Exalt Christ establish his reign in each of our hearts. Father, we pray for our kids back there that they would hear your word and believe. God, make, create faith in them, shine upon their hearts the light of your truth. God, would they turn away from evil and turn towards you? Would they turn away from self and pride and idolatry and unbelief, God? And would they turn to you Lord, bless the workers back there, even now at this moment. Give them special graces to teach your word. Give them zeal for their work. And give us all zeal now as we encounter you through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So, verses 9 to 16, the latter part of this Cain and Abel story, involve an interchange between God and Cain, if you kind of notice that. Three times God speaks. And each of these is followed by a word or action from Cain. So you get this kind of interchange. God speaks, there's a Cain response or action. God speaks, Cain response or action. God speaks, the same thing. So by tracing this interaction with God, we get a clear portrait of Cain. And remember, as I said before, that's what the Holy Spirit's guiding us to get. The Holy Spirit wants us to get a very clear picture of this man. So there's three things that we need to see this morning. Three things to see. First, God's call and Cain's denial. Second, God's curse and Cain's dissatisfaction. And then finally, God's care and Cain's departure. So that's what we're going to do this morning as we walk through uh, these verses. So first, let's look at our first point, God's call and Cain's denial. Look again at verse 9. Let's let let's hone in. On this verse for this section of the sermon. Verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? If you've ever heard maybe one of your children speak to you in this way. I'm sure that we all have or spoken to our own parents in this way. How tragic here. Here we are reminded of God's first words to Adam after he sinned. Remember, go back, if you scroll back in your mind, or you could just flip the page. Chapter 3, verse 9, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Is God ignorant? God's full of questions at the beginning of the Bible. I mean, does God just not know what's going on? It's not the case. God knows all. He hears all. He sees all. He is omnipotent. He has all capacities at their fullest. He is omniscient. He knows everything. He's omnipresent. He's always there. He's always here. What we discussed last time when we looked at these words back in chapter 3, we saw that God's question was really a call to confession and repentance. God doesn't first come and say, you did God essentially comes and says, confess to me what you've done. What have you done? What have you done? And he uses the question for Adam, a different question for Adam than he uses here for Cain, but that is the purpose of the question asking. God is calling, hence God's call. God is calling for confession and repentance. And although... We did not see full confession and true repentance from Adam when God first came to him. Remember, we we looked back at that. I mean, that was a train wreck. Adam is blaming Eve, and Eve blames the serpent, and and, and Adam even has the gall to say to God, the woman whom you gave me, therefore implicitly blaming God. It's, it's It's Eve's fault, but ultimately, God, it's your fault because you're the one who gave me this this woman, and she led me astray. So, who's, who's really to blame here? Just an awful situation, not full confession, not true repentance, but we did see words of acknowledgement. We did see that, acknowledgement that he had sinned. So at the end of verse 12, we get those words, I ate, I ate. But what is Cain's response? to God's question. Adam says, I ate. Eve said, I ate. We come to find later as we get to the end of chapter three at the beginning of chapter four that Adam and Eve are believers. They trust in God's promises, God's first word of promise to them that, that Eve's seed would crush the head of the serpent, bruise the head of the serpent, bruise Satan, crush Satan. They trusted in God. They trusted in his word. And we see expressions of faith in the naming of Eve by Adam. He names her life. And we see that with Eve at the very beginning of chapter 4 as she speaks to God as the covenant Lord or she praises God for giving her a child. And and I see in this a hopeful anticipation of, of the seed, the seed who will crush Satan's head. So that was Adam and Eve. We saw Abel's faith in his sacrifice. But what is Cain's response to God's question here? Where is Abel your brother? Cain? I do not know. Well, of course he knew. He had just killed his brother. He had just bashed his brother in the head or however else he killed him and left him there on the ground. He knew exactly where he was sitting on the ground in a pool of his own blood or maybe buried under some dirt or pushed under a bush. He knew exactly what had become of his brother and where he was. But he says to God, I don't know. I don't know, God. One commentator, Kenneth Matthews, says, unlike his father who admitted his crime, though reluctantly, and we have to put that in there, Cain adds to his condemnation by lying. And what we've seen here is this heaping up of evil. First, there's the, the unworthy sacrifice. Then there's the raging, envious, rebellious heart. Then there's the murder. And now we've got this response to God. This is This is the Cain that the Holy Spirit wants us to see. He adds to his condemnation by lying. And to this denial, Cain adds disrespect and disregard with the words, am I my brother's keeper? What's he saying there? Well, I think he's doing two things. One, he's disrespecting God just outright. I mean, it's incredible. His response is rude, arrogant, angry, and defiant, and it lacks all reverence towards his creator. What an incredible contrast when you see Cain's response to God and you see the response of people throughout the Bible when an angel of God comes on the scene. This is incredible. An angel of God is in, in, incomparable to God. God is infinite and eternal. He's the maker. He's holy. He's distinct. Angels are nothing compared to God. But when an angel of God who... who abides in God's presence, comes to men. They fall on their faces in humility and they tremble. And here is Cain speaking not to an angel, but to the living God himself, his maker. Am I my brother's keeper, God? Come on. Why are you coming to me with this? This is awful. This is disrespect at its highest. But we also see disregard for his Neighbor, His words, am I my brother's keeper, show that, Cain, show that Cain lacks any sense of responsibility for his fellow man. Even more for his own brother. His brother, your brother. This is repeated throughout this passage. The text is wanting to remind us, this is his brother. This is his brother we're talking about. This is his brother, Cain, your brother, constantly throughout this passage narrative. Cain thinks he has no responsibility for his fellow man. This is the opposite of the teaching of the Bible. The Bible teaches us that what it means to love our neighbor or love one another is that we look out for the interests of our neighbor, of our brother, of our fellow Christian, of our family member, whoever it may be, of our enemy. That we look out for the interests of the other. We show regard. Cain here shows two things that are uh, central to to an unbeliever, hatred of God and hatred of man, hatred of neighbor. That's exactly why Jesus says that the first great commandments are love God, love neighbor. Everything else depends on that. And so so the Bible wants to, at the very beginning, show us that Cain doesn't do either of these. And it wants to show us, obviously, even in this response we see, that instead of loving God, he hates God. He's so defiant and angry in his tone. And instead of loving his neighbor, he murders him and then speaks in this way. But here's the main idea I want you to see at this point. The godless person is one who hears God's call to confess and denies any wrongdoing at all. This is one of the marks of a godless person. And think about this. How much does this happen? In churches, week after week after week, every time God's word is taught, people fallen should be convicted of their sin. Because every time God's word is taught, the glory of God, the holiness of God, and the glory and majesty of Christ and what he endured for sinners is put on display. And we tremble when we consider that we are undone before God, that we are sinners. Before this God. But what happens? We deflect deflect blame. We evade blame. We outright deny blame for our sin. I didn't do that. I don't do that. That's not me. And as Christians, we thank God that he has given us a heart to confess. Because this is a grace. This is a grace. We think, okay, if you will be saved, you must repent. But what we, what we know from the Bible throughout Scripture, especially certain passages in the New Testament, is that repentance is a gift from God. God gives us the very heart to confess. Isn't that an amazing grace? Is that the sinner doesn't even have the capacity to confess because that is the mark of an unbeliever is that they don't confess sin. They hide sin. Jesus said that when he said that light has come, what does darkness do? It hates the light because it exposes the sin. And so every time we confess, we should be reminded of the fact that God has been gracious to us. Because just the fact that we would, we would think to confess to God is itself a grace. Psalm 51, 17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not Despise. That's what God wants, and He gives us that as Christians. Every time we, we confess our sins and repent of those sins, we are seeing God's grace in us. Proverbs 28:13 says, "Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy." What are you hiding? This morning. I want to read that again? Whoever conceals his transgressions, maybe you're here this morning, you are concealing, you are hiding. You think that no one sees you. No one sees your sin. No one sees this debauchery, this this depraved habit that you have just fed and let fester in your life. God sees, and this is the end he will not prosper. Your life's headed nowhere with that concealing. But he who confesses and forsakes them will attain mercy. Come to God with your sin this morning. Don't hide it. Don't keep, don't keep petting it. You think it's in a small cage? It's just a small little pet. It's not dangerous. It's not a lion. It's a little rabbit or whatever. A little ferret. A little guinea pig. It's not that. It is a ferocious beast worse than a lion. It's real. And you're petting it as though it's just a small little house pet. Confess and forsake it and God will be merciful to you. Do that this morning. What better time as we look at this non-confessor, Cain? What better time to come to God and call out to him for mercy than this morning? So that leads us to our second point, God's curse and Cain's Dissatisfaction. We've seen God's call. What does Cain do? He denies. Confess, Cain. No, I didn't do it. And now we see God's curse and more from Cain, his dissatisfaction. Look at verses 10 to 14. And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. This is pitiful. When we read that the voice of Abel's Blood is crying out to God from the ground. We are introduced here at the beginning of the Bible. Once again, this is worldview formation. We are introduced here at the beginning of the Bible to one of the most comforting truths in the Bible. And that is this, that there is no injustice in the world that goes unnoticed. Let me say that again. There is no injustice in all the world, in all of human history, past and future, that goes unnoticed by this God. All injustice cries out to a just God who hears and responds, and in the end, justice will be met. Psalm 9 tells us that God has established his throne for justice. Isn't that amazing? Look at that language. God has established his throne. When God speaks about his kingship, his reign, his rule over all, he says it's for the purpose of justice. It's incredible. That he is a stronghold for the oppressed. And it goes on in verse 12 to say that he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. And so just before we even get to Cain, I think there's something here that we need to know about the Lord. And that is that we can trust him with every bit of injustice that we experience in this life. We can entrust to him, as the Lord Jesus did, as he was given the greatest injustice of all in his trial, in his treatment, by the Jews and by the Gentiles, all of that mockery, all of that suffering. He entrusted himself to God. He entrusted himself into the hands of his Father, who he knew was just, and in the end would exalt him, establish his reign, and purchase for him a people through Christ's own blood who would worship him forever. So we can trust every little injustice. See, this creates a non-vindictive person. You have to see this. A person who believes that God is going to vindicate him or her or that God is going to make all things right is not a person who has to make sure that every time he or she is offended, you have to lash back, you have to lash out, you have to make it right. You have to vindicate yourself. We do that all the time with our spouses, with our children perhaps. We do that with people we work with, our friends, other family members. Our honor gets attacked. Maybe we, our person, our physical person gets attacked. And what do we do? Justice. I demand justice for myself. And God says, vengeance is mine. Trust Me, entrust yourself to me. And from this also comes the sobering truth as we consider what God says here about Abel's blood. We also see the sobering truth that God will repay evil with punishment. Do you believe that? You know, maybe, I mean, I don't want to presume, maybe there's someone in this room who right now is just oppressing another person. God's going to repay you. You need to hear that. He will repay you for your evil. This is a God who notices the victim, yes, but he also notices the perpetrator. We see him noticing Abel's blood, therefore noticing Abel, vindicating Abel, but he knows Cain. He sees Cain, the perpetrator of this evil at the end of verse 11, the ground received Abel's blood from your hand. God says, "Why did Abel's blood get spilt onto the ground because of your hands? Look at your hands, Cain. You killed him with your hands. You did this evil, this injustice. Romans 12:19 says in, in Romans 12:19, God says, "Vengeance is mine, I will repay," says the Lord. This is Paul quoting the Old Testament. Ecclesiastes 12, 14 says this, at the end of it all, vanity of vanities, all throughout, all throughout Ecclesiastes, but this is the one thing you want you to leave with. You must know this. You must know this, reader. Pursue your wisdom. Pursue pleasure. Pursue gain. Enjoy your work. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is a fact of life that we all need to reckon with. I'm going to at the end I want to say something specifically here about Christ, but I'm going to wait on that till the end. And in these verses we see that God's punishment for Cain is a curse. And not just a curse on something that will affect Cain, but a curse on Cain himself. This is interesting. This is the first person cursed in the Bible. You say, hold on a second. No, no, no. Adam and Eve were cursed. Well, not so. Not so. Not specifically. Not explicitly. What it says there is the ground is cursed for your sake or because of you. God cursed the ground. But here, this is interesting. We can't miss this. God curses Cain. Cursed are you. This is the first person cursed in the Bible. The last time we saw an individual cursed, it was the serpent. It was Satan. 1 John 3.12 says that Cain was of the evil one. And here's what the Bible's wanting us to get. This is the line of curse. This is the line of curse. This is the seed of Satan. It begins with Satan. It goes through Cain, and it goes through all of humanity. Apart from God's grace, there is a massive curse over all human beings. Apart from Christ. Those in Christ are like those on the ark. We've been looking at the ark in our family worship time at home. And one of the the great truths that I think we can give to our kids is this. Christ is the ark. That just as, as, as Noah and his family entered the ark, everything else was destroyed. All other people were destroyed, but not those on the ark. Christ is the ark. Those who are in Christ do not get God's wrath, are not cursed, but everyone else is. And this is something that we are meant to see even here at the beginning of the Bible. So what does this curse entail? Verse 11, cursed from the ground. This is explained in verse 12. The ground will no longer yield to you its strength, it says. In other words, from now on, Cain the farmer, remember he's a farmer, he works the land. From now on, Cain, the farmer, will experience failure in his farming. Adam would, by the sweat of his face, get food. Sometimes it will work well, still sweaty. Sometimes not so well. For Cain, it's not gonna work well, period. This is not just difficulty, but failure. And in verse 12, God says, you shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Both of these words are used together in Isaiah 24:20. And there it says, the earth staggers, this is the first word used, the earth staggers like a drunken man, it sways like a hut. So that gives us a little insight as to what God is saying here. This is the kind of life that Cain is going to live, a life like a staggering drunken man, like a swaying hut in the wind. The picture is one of lifelong rootlessness, instability, aimlessness. So what was Cain's response to God's curse? His response to God's call to confess was denial, as we just saw. And now his response to God's curse is dissatisfaction. And not just dissatisfaction. This is complaining against God. You have to see this. This is incredible. Complaining against God. This is impugning God's character. He's calling God mean and unfair. Implicitly, he's saying, this is too much for me to bear, God. You are so unjust. You are so mean and unfair. How could you level this punishment against me? This is approaching God with a sense of entitlement. What in the world does God okay? Death, destruction, destruction. But what, is, what does Cain say? I'm entitled to better than this, God. This is pretty poor treatment of me. You need to revisit this. And even more, Cain's response is entirely consumed with himself. Do you see that? One commentator has noted the irony in this way. He who killed his own brother now frets lest someone kill him. This is total lack of empathy. Empathy. He, he recognizes, Cain is able to recognize that being killed is not a great thing. He, he's able to see that. He knows that. But the problem is he has no empathy. He doesn't, he's not able to process the fact that if, if I don't like being killed, then, then maybe I shouldn't kill somebody else. No, he doesn't have that. not worried about his brother. He's just worried about himself. not worried about anyone else, just himself. Another commentator describes Cain's response like this. Cain expresses no inkling of remorse, only self-pity and resentment. And here's the main thing I want you to see. For the godless person, God's judgment is always met with self-absorbed complaining. This is the reason, that I, don't, the reason I don't understand churches and preachers who don't preach on hell. Because the sinner is never going to like hell. Because sinners don't like God's judgment. They don't like God's punishments. They think they're unfair and mean. It is no surprise that the world says hell's just unjust. Who can believe in a God who would send people to hell? Of course they say that's what Cain said. God's mean. He's unjust. And the reason they say that is because they have no regard for God's glory. The reason a Christian thinks hell is just and understands it It's not because we've worked out all of the apologetic questions. There's much mystery there. But it's because we know one thing for sure. And that is God is glorious. And to rebel against his glory is a damnable thing. Every Christian is sure of that much at the very least. Cain's response is like what we see in Revelation 16 verses 8 to 11. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire they were scorched. Listen to this. This is God's judgment being poured out in, in the book of Revelation at the end of time. And this is what it says. They were scorched by the fierce heat. What would they do? They fall on their faces and repent. Say, God save me? Have mercy on me. I'm sorry. No. They cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Sinners don't repent. They curse God. They're angry at this God for doing such things to me because... Sinners apart from God are entitled. I believe God owes us something. God owes us grace. He owes us favor, not judgment. But at first glance, we might be tempted to think that Cain really cares about being separated from God. I mean, there's a little inkling of hope here, you might think. Since he complains in verse 14, From your face I shall be hidden. Well, God sounds a little bit like David after he sinned, right, with Bathsheba and Uriah. He says, don't take your spirit from me. I want your presence, God. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Let's see what's going on here with Cain. A little glimmer of hope, but that's not the case at all. And that leads us to our final point where we'll see this clearly. Thirdly, God's care and Cain's departure. As we finish up this morning, look at verses 15 to 16. Verses 15 to 16. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, which essentially means a wandering. <laughs> so the wanderer went to a place of wandering. From the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden, further east. You see that movement there. Adam and Eve went east out of the garden, and now we're going further east. Here God provides something for Cain, a mark or a sign, some kind of visual sign that would keep someone from taking vengeance on him. And while there has been much speculation on what this sign or mark was, the text just doesn't tell us. So, you know, we can can talk about it for a little bit. We could talk about it over coffee, uh, maybe read a chapter on it, something like that. But, I mean, you know, this is not the kind of thing that should uh, just keep our our wheels turning, right? This is speculation. We don't know what kind of mark there was on Cain, on his person, or, or with him, or whatever. But we know that God did something. So why does God do this for Cain? I mean, all that we've seen, why does God do this for him? Two reasons, I think, at least. First, God acts wisely here. In his wisdom, God ensures that the killing would be curtailed. And here's what I mean by that. Who knows where this would have headed? Who knows how many revenge killings there would have been if one of Adam's future children or another descendant determined to repay him for what he had done to Abel. Remember, everybody's family at this point, and and cognizant of that fact, right? Right? So someone kills Cain, and Cain's descendant kills someone else, and who knows what would have happened. So God, in his wisdom, cuts it off. No more bloodshed. And this tells us something in the beginning of the Bible about God's attitude towards human death. God did not make human beings to die and lie in their own blood. That's not God's intention for human life, for human beings. God does not rejoice even in the death of the wicked, the Bible says, God does not rejoice in bloodshed. So he cuts it off. I think that's the first reason. The second reason, the first reason has to do with his wisdom. The second reason has to do with his grace. Although I would add here, not saving grace. Cain was not a believer. We have no indication from anywhere in the Bible that Cain will be in heaven with the Lord. That we will see Cain if we know God. No indication whatsoever in all of Scripture But it does remind us of the fact that God shows kindness and grace, listen to this, even to those who reject him, even to his enemies, as we read in Matthew 5, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And this itself forms the basis for how Christians are to treat their enemies. Think about it. Look at the way God is treating even Cain. Even Cain. This evil, this murder, this disrespect, this disregard, even Cain even Cain. Regarding this provision for Cain, Kent Hughes comments, in one sense, the mark did not lighten his punishment because a premature death would have shortened his awful sentence. Nevertheless, the fear of a violent death was removed from Cain. God's wisdom, God's grace. And what is the end result of all of this? One word, one word, departure. Cain's Departure. We are told in verse 16, Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. You can't miss that at the very end there. Yes, it was part of God's punishment that Cain be expelled from his presence, from his watchful care. Yes, but we need to see something here. Stay with me. We need to see something here. Cain is the subject of the verb Cain went away. Cain went away. He chose to walk away from God without confession and repentance. We could ask a question. What if Cain would have repented here or here or here? You just chase it through the narrative, you know, different points. Maybe here, maybe here, maybe here. We don't know. What we know is that he didn't. He chose Instead of repenting and confessing his sin, to simply walk away from God. No cry for God's mercy here. No seeking the face of God. No seeking God's salvation or his grace. No concern for knowing this God. He hasn't had a desire for worshiping him or communing with him all along. And here's what's amazing about this. Once his mind is put at ease, that someone won't be trying to track him down to kill him, he simply walks away from God. Okay, good. This is the godless man. This is the godless man. And so is everyone who chooses to live apart from God and who cares little for knowing him. This is Cain. Take note. The Holy Spirit is saying to us, all, all of us, take note. And Jude 11, don't go the way of Cain. Cain. As we finish this morning, I want us to see how this text points us forward to the Lord Jesus Christ in two specific ways. You have to see this. This is amazing. Christ, we see Christ in Cain's curse. Because remember I talked about how at the very beginning we've got this line of curse. Well, here's what we need to see. This curse would envelop all human beings. All human beings. There would be no ark. There would be no Noah and his family. There would be nothing but God and his holy angels. There'd be no people. But God looked down in history, and he put the curse on Christ. And that's the reason why some of us aren't cursed. Catch that. There are many who go the way of destruction. Many people are cursed. Most people throughout the history of the world, cursed Some of us, not. Why? Galatians 3.13, because Christ became a curse for us. That's why I say this. There are two people, two kinds of people, the graced and the godless, those who are in Christ, safe and secure from all evil in the end. He's a fortress. No one can break through. But not those who are outside of Christ, They will be like Cain, they will go the way of Cain, and they will have the same end as Cain. Christ in Cain's curse, and then finally as we finish, I want you to see Christ in Abel's blood. And here's what I mean by that. Hebrews 12, 24, it says that Christ's sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What does that mean? Well, what does Abel's blood cry out for from the ground? What does it cry out for? Vengeance. What does Christ's blood cry out for from the ground? Forgiveness. Christ's blood cries out. Through this, you can be forgiven. And so this morning, as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, I just want to remind all of us that because Christ shed His blood on the cross by believing in Him, all, 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 all of our evil, all of our denying, all of our disregard for our, for our neighbor, all of our disrespect towards God and complaining towards God and not wanting to be with God, all of that covered by the blood of Christ for those who look to him by faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the one who became a curse. We thank you for the blood by which the curse is removed. Father, thank you for this reminder and warning this morning. Would we heed it? Would we hear it? Would we not walk away and forget it? Would we be doers of the word and not merely hearers? Father, help us, in Jesus' name, amen. At this point in our service, we have uh, the Lord's Supper, so let me just go ahead and ask if you'll be serving this morning to go ahead and come forward, please. This is a time where we visually partake symbolically of the blood of Christ through the juice or wine and crackers or bread. We partake of Christ's body. This is our participation in Him. We are saying by doing this that we believe that through Christ our sins are forgiven. Through Him we have eternal life. And so I just want to say this morning if you're a Christian here and you're in good standing with your local church, We would ask that you come forward and partake of this uh, with self-examination, repentance, and faith. But if you're not this morning a Christian, we would ask that you not participate in this. We are very glad you're here. We want to talk with you about everything that's been discussed and anything else you have to talk about. We want to try to answer your questions and think through it with you. And we'll even have someone over at the door at the end to pray with you and think through this with you. But we would ask that you not participate in this part of our service. This is only for Christians who have truly believed in the Lord Jesus. So come when you're ready.